Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Blake Hutchison, the CEO of Flippa, the largest marketplace to buy and sell online businesses. Blake has seen more entrepreneurs exit than perhaps anyone else, and he specializes in growth marketing, marketplace dynamics, and leadership. On this episode, Blake and I discuss some of the reasons why people sell their businesses, how Flippa accurately appraises a business, market fluctuations for online businesses, and much more. Here's our interview now. Blake, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. It's good to be here, Alex. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Very happy to have you. So first off, tell me a little bit about your company, Flippa. Yeah, Flippa's a marketplace to buy and sell online businesses and digital assets. So think about eBay, but for buying businesses. And it's a little bit like a a dating website. We're there to match business owners who want to exit with buyers who want to buy. Uh, We bring the two parties together using some AI smarts as well as a bunch of connected data. And ultimately, um, our mission is to democratize the exit and empower and enable business ownership. That's awesome. So you mentioned kind of being matchmaker for interested parties, whether they want for, for connecting buyers and sellers. Is that by design or can some people kind of come in and, and it be a, a bit of an autonomous marketplace? Yeah, it's it's self-service to the extent that a business owner knows their business best. We give them the tools to expose the qualities of their business, both objective qualities, so the financial data, as well as um, opportunities for growth. And therefore, it's a little analogous to traditional real estate, like buying a a house or a condo or an apartment. Ultimately, there's some data which defines that house or condo or apartment, its location, its street address, how many bedrooms it's got and how many bathrooms it's got, all those types of things, right? And so in a business, it's a little bit different, but you're still got metrics that relate to how the business is performing. And then those metrics are used to showcase a business's performance and and its potential to be acquired, i.e. the value. And so what we do is we enable business owners who have worked on their businesses for, for some years, the average business sold on Flipper, all digital businesses, by the way. So it's e-commerce, SaaS, apps, and blogs. Although to some extent, you could also sell a podcast. Um, so as long as it's digital in nature... It lives and breathe. It can live and breathe on the Flipper website, and we power in. We plug into QuickBooks Online and Zero and Shopify and Stripe and PayPal and Amazon. All these names that you've heard of that power the e-commerce uh, revolution or e-commerce economy. They're all connected to the system, and so a seller can connect the dots, showcase their data, and a buyer on the flip side can come in and peruse the assets that are available, assess those assets on merit, and then decide to acquire or not. That's very cool. And and I'm glad that you brought up the real estate market because that was the first thing that it reminded me of, you know, when I was doing some research, looking at the website, obviously, you know, the name too, I think it like a house flipper instead of flipping houses we're flipping businesses a little bit. And so I don't know the way the website is structured. One of these businesses pops up. It does just really remind me of like a real estate listing. Was that a conscientious choice? Is that kind of the rubric a little bit that you were looking at? Yeah, look, I think the name is probably, I mean, we like the name and we, we're proud of our brand. I think it's it's a bit different to flipping houses in the sense that when you buy a business, you're actually actually buying and acquiring a cash flow generating asset. So we find that people tend to, yes, improve them, 
but they're improving them for the benefit of improved cash flow versus improving them for the benefit of selling them on. But yes, it is analogous to real estate. It's analogous in many ways. Real estate is in many cities many cities around the world, and depending on the economy, of course, is an appreciating asset. And certainly digital assets are appreciating. There is a great deal of buyer liquidity, and there's a, a large number of, of buyers who sit on those assets knowing full well that over the next five to 10 years, digital real estate will be worth more than it is today. So you've got an analogy there. The other piece of the pie relates to you know how people appraise traditional real estate versus cash flow generating online businesses. People look at them in a very similar way. They look at them as to the quality of them today, the quality of them in the future. They look at them on the basis of their performance um, historically, much like a rental yield that you might get when you buy an investment property. So it's certainly analogous. I guess, you know, most people are familiar with Zillow and the Zillow's estimate. And of course, they can have such a debatable how accurate it is, but they can have an accurate estimate on the basis of so much data that they sit on and the benchmarks that they can use to, to essentially create an accurate valuation. Flipper's a little bit the same. We we trade over 12,000 online businesses each year. And so as a function of that, we know a lot about online businesses. And so for an online business owner, they can get a very, very accurate valuation from us, given we sit on so much data and can use that data to make an informed prediction of the, the value of an asset. So yeah, it's certainly analogous. No, that's great. And we're definitely going to break down some of the appraisal side of things, at least in terms of this conversation, I kind of wanted to take a twin track and talk about, you know, selling a business and then and then buying the business. So what are some of the specific reasons that people want to sell their business, their online business on Flippa? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's actually not sinister, um, which most people think it is, right? Why would someone want to sell something that's doing so well? So in the average life cycle of a business is actually about five years. And so if you think about that, that means they've gotten beyond that very tenuous period where they're looking to scale up, where they've got to invest in marketing, where they've got to find their first 100 customers. You know, these are businesses that are stable, sustainable, long-term in nature. And the most common reason is I want to realize value in my hard work so I can do something else with that value. And so that could be, I want to buy a house. That could be, I want to put my kid through college. That could be, I want to buy another business. That could be any number of things that relate to the financial flexibility you get once you exit. In addition to that, it sometimes is about outliving the asset. And so let's say for argument's sake, I create a a business that is built around whatever, let's say personal training. Maybe it's home gym equipment. Maybe I'm an e-commerce retailer retailing home gym equipment. So maybe I am a gym junkie. Maybe I'm an enthusiast. Okay, five years in, that may not be the case anymore. So I've outlived my passion and that's a reason why people will sell. Sometimes people will also sell because the skills required to continue to grow and maintain the business are now different to the skills that I have and the skills I use to grow the business in the first place. So that's another reason, right? They're the most common reasons and we see it time and time again. You know, people are looking for that financial flexibility and freedom you get from the exit 
or as I said, having outlived the passion or the skill set. I love how you broke that down for me, honestly. You're totally right. I think it's definitely different skills, getting someone in the door and keeping them in the proverbial house. You know, it's, it's definitely different. So how do you possibly protect Flippa and ensure as little buyer's remorse as possible? How do you properly vet the businesses? You know, I mean, you've got to obviously protect your brand. Yeah. How do, how do you do that? How do you properly vet these businesses? Yeah, it's a really, really critical question. So there's a couple of things. One, yes, we're a tech company, but we don't discount the benefit of having a verification team. And so different price points call for more or less verification, but every single asset on our platform over the value of $50,000 has human level verification where they go through the profit and loss statement, they go through the expense and revenue data, and they validate and verify that it is in fact as stated. So that's piece one. Piece two is what we call verification at the source. And so let's say for argument's sake, a business owner is looking to exit their Shopify e-commerce store. We enable business owners and they must as per the terms of our platform, if they are in fact a customers of a customer of one of the platforms that we connect to, they must connect to that platform. So what that means is that they log into their Shopify account in this particular example, and Flipper will pull down the data from their Shopify store and expose that to the buyer base. And so we will expose the revenue data, we will expose the average order value, we will expose the refund rates we will expose the top selling SKUs. So that data there is, you can't doctor that data. It's coming straight out of the platform that governs that and operates that particular store. And we then are able to not only validate and verify the data, but we then use that data also for comps and benchmarks. So you can actually see how that store compares to other stores like it and then make an objective decision as to the performance. That's all really great. Is the goal a lot of times for for a seller to totally relinquish control of their business or are are some of them on there kind of trying to look for for capital backing a little bit? Yeah, it's a great question. So on Flipper, we sell the assets. Uh, We don't sell the shares. That's not to say that in the future, we may not have a facility to be able to do that. Uh, We probably will. But at the moment, yes, they are absolutely selling the assets and 100% of the assets in, in almost all cases. There are some situations where the seller is willing to stay on and operate the business um, on behalf of the new owner, Um, although I would say that that is rare. And in most cases, they are relinquishing 100% and they're also selling 100%. Because I could imagine, you know, some people are kind of like, I built this business with my own hands for five years. Something's missed, but I'm not really willing to give up the reins on it. So if I just like don't own it anymore, I can get the backing and convince them that maybe I'm like the CEO for them or I'm the COO for them. And and I totally get that whatever yeah, grows from there, right. I won't get 100% of the profit like I initially intended but I'm just not ready yet, you know? There's certainly an aspect of that that can happen. They'll they'll often negotiate that separate to the asset transfer agreement where they will agree to stay on board for a salary and they will agree to be part of profit sharing and or bonus payments and use the platform as a means to to match make to get somewhat of an exit, but then stay on board. That that does happen. What I would say is it's it's rarer than a full trade sale, 
And in that case, you know, the vast majority of people are just looking to get on with something else. Gotcha. Other side of the coin, why do people want to buy online businesses? Yep. I think we should break up the buyer into two parts. So there is the the side hustler and the acquisition entrepreneur. And so in their particular case, what they're actually looking to do is buy something that is already cash flow generating and they're essentially acquiring their next job or at least part of a job because it's a side hustle. And so in that particular case, they are buying because they want the cash flow, they want the supplementary income, but they don't want the challenge of going from zero to one. Most people get caught up in the idea that platforms today make it super easy to start. It's not about the tech that makes businesses hard. It's about your ability to scale, acquire your first 10 customers, 50 customers, 100 customers, and 1,000 customers, which is very, very difficult. So acquiring a business actually gives you so much insight. You know the history, you know the paying customers, you know who the repeat customers are, you know the products that work, the products that don't work, you know your cost base, you know which staff are good, which staff are not good in the event there are, in fact, employees, Um, you know which markets are good, you know whether Facebook works or doesn't work for advertising, you know whether Google works or doesn't work. So you get huge amounts of insight being an acquisition entrepreneur that you don't get when you start from scratch. The second type of buyer is a company buyer or an institutional buyer. So that would be an independent company, a private company, or it could be an institutional investor like private equity. And they're buying for different reasons, but they're also coming down into the marketplace because they're looking for bolt-ons, they're looking for inorganic growth. So they might be just acquiring the audience. So for example, let's say you own 50 laundromats all over the East Coast. Or you could buy a blog that is for sale on Flipper, which is all about clothing upkeep. It's all about how you wash clothes. Um, It's all about laundry detergents. And you're actually acquiring the audience as a means to win customers to your core business. So that's a bolt-on opportunity. And the most Common reason for that is because you're trying to build your core business and drive in organic growth without having to pay some other platform to acquire customers. They're kind of the two most common reasons, but the the predominant reason is it's cash flow generating asset. Awesome. I really appreciate the way you you broke that down in kind of two different camps. You mentioned this earlier, and, and I want to dive into it a little bit more. How do you accurately appraise a business? The best way to appraise a business is to look at the attributes of that business and compare those attributes to other businesses that have historically sold. And so if an e-commerce business operating on Shopify has been around for four years, is in the fashion sector, has an average order value of $150, a refund rate of less than 10%, is growing at 20% year on year, and has a cost of acquisition of $10, then you take those attributes and you compare those attributes to other similar businesses which have historically sold ideally in the prior 24 months, and you then can make an inference as to the value of that asset. You can also figure out which buyers and the the extent or cohort of the buyer base that would be interested. So that's the the best way to do it. Now, of course, what you've also got to factor in is buy-side competition, which actually fluctuates from quarter to quarter based on different trends and categories of interest. And so you've got to factor in buy-side interest as well because, of course, where there's competition for an asset, the actual valuation can grow with that competition. So short answer is it's based on objective 
historical, financial metrics, and other business performance attributes that are then linked to similar and like assets. But then there's also got to be kind of that sort of addendum where it's like, if there's a, a saturated market in similar style businesses, that would probably drive the price down a little bit, I would imagine too. You know, if everyone's doing, you know, SEO, a, a website about SEO optimization or something like that. Three years ago, when there were, there were two of them, it's going to be different now than when there's 28 of them. Right. That's right. And that's why it comes down to financial metrics, right? Because it's not about the idea. People do not buy businesses on the basis of the idea. People buy buy businesses on the basis of historical performance. This is not startup investing. So you don't say, hey, thank you very much for your wonderful story about how you're going to change the world of X. As a function of that, I will value it X times 50. That is not how this works. What you do is you look at the trailing 12-month performance. So your example of the SEO agencies well, I accept that you're, you're right. What it actually comes down to is not the fact that there is so much competition for SEO agencies. It comes down to the performance of each given SEO agency. And so if one is bad, then it's undervalued. And one is really good, it's overvalued. And so it's a function of, or not overvalued, but, but valued higher. And so it's a function of performance. And so, for example, you can have a review website and the review website only reviews pet-related goods and refers traffic to Amazon and earns affiliate revenue as a function of that review website. Very common. That's the Amazon Associates problem. Uh, uh, Amazon Associates program powers hundreds of thousands of blogs in the US. Now, yes, pet review websites, that is a highly competitive niche because everyone wants to earn money from sending traffic to Amazon. So yes, I will accept that therefore you haven't found a gap in the market and you're you're doing something particularly unique, but actually it doesn't matter. What matters is, is of the 100,000 pet review websites, how much money do you derive and how consistent is that cash flow? And if it is lots of money and it's consistent and you've done been doing that for a long period of time, hence you can understand the sustainability and scalability of the asset then it's worth something. No, that's great. I think that's really important to articulate a little bit. I, I saw on your website, all right, that you aim to optimize for the highest possible sale price for the seller. So, so my question to you, Blake, is do you consider Flippa to be more advantageous for, for sellers than, than for buyers? Do you guys like lean, lean towards seller market? It's a really good question. So let's be transparent. We make our money when a seller sells. So it is in our interest to get a seller a deal that they are content with, but we are not a brokerage. So we don't have the issue of biasing one buyer over the next to ensure speed of sale. What we do is we use technology to provide the best possible matches, and then we use notifications and competitive tension to drive buyers to get deals done so as it works in the interests of both parties. A buyer gets a deal done and a seller gets a deal done, but let's not pull any punches. We make our money from when the seller sells. So let's just play that out. When a business owner lists, our platform goes to work and it will match as fast and as hard as it possibly can based on AI. There's two graph neural networks. We're trying to understand latent and hidden intent of the buyers and try to understand a relationship between the buyers so that we can push as many buyers into any given asset based on the likelihood of them having interest. Now, once they have interest and demonstrate that interest, 
one of those buyers may submit a letter of intent. So, of course, as a good marketplace, what are we going to do? We go and tell all the other buyers that a letter of intent has just been submitted. So, would they like to issue one too? And as a function of that, you're then driving competition. Now, the good news there is that more buyers get a look at the price. And the good news for the seller is that you've got buyers competing. Now, does that mean that we're not working in the interest of the buyers? No. Buyers are interested in seeing as much deal flow as possible. So we're going to serve them up those many deals as possible. So I would say if you want the truest version of events, the seller is our client and we are pushing as much energy into their asset as possible to maximize the opportunity of exit. Wonderful. I appreciate your candor and and being so candid. Now, speaking of seller first bit mentality i'd really love to know how you how you developed the business you know not maybe not the the idea to conception but i'm i'm even more interested in how you grew the portfolio of businesses who wanted to sell i mean it's not an easy thing to just go around you know the e-commerce industry and collect as many people as you can who are looking to sell their business so so what what was that process kind of like Yeah, and the process has evolved over time, but we were benefited from growing out of a community. And communities are one of the best ways to test concepts, understand opportunities, and ultimately build off the back of. And so there was a developer forum called SitePoint.com. It's still around now, so it's 20 years old. And SitePoint.com was a developer's community. And so developers would talk about what they were building, and they would share that insight. And as a function of that, we noticed that the developers were actually trading stuff. So much like on eBay, those developers were saying, hey, I built an app. And another developer would say, well, I did this. And another developer would say, well, I've done this. And then they'd start to exchange them. And so we weren't party to that. We were just the conduits of the community or conduits to the community. Flipper was spun out of that community. We basically said to the community, hey, we noticed you're trading stuff. Would you like to trade stuff here? And it was just... Initially, it was the top-level navigation of SitePoint. So it said flip website, sell website, probably said sell website, if I remember correctly. And so as a function of that, you had some had some people doing that. Now, that's the cold start problem, right? Where do you start? How do you get sales, sellers? How do you get buyers? Short answer is, in our case, we, we solved for that problem every day, but we were benefited and blessed with a community that was very active. Today, it's a bit different. We have some tricks up our sleeves. So whenever we see a new valuation and we see around three to 5,000 valuations a month, each one of those valuations gives us a huge amount of insight and data. So obviously, we see the asset that has been valued. But as a function of seeing that asset, we can learn a lot about the competitive set for that asset. And if we can learn a lot about the competitive set for the asset, we start to understand the asset universe. And so we've started to map the universe of digital assets and try to understand who owns them and what they look like and how they compare to each other. And so behind the scenes, we are essentially figuring out the universe of assets that we can essentially attract and bring to our platform. Of course, we have a sales team now too, right? So we've got a sales team who is who is calling on business owners and saying, hey, pick Flipper, have you considered an exit? Um, we can give you a valuation. The valuation is really important for winning on the sell side because it gives you some data from which you can make an informed judgment about the quality of the asset. And from there, you can sell and market to that asset owner and 
convince them of your value proposition and ultimately win them on the power of our buyer base. Now, I will say the buyer base is a piece of cake. There is a lot of liquidity. Buyers are everywhere. Buyers are savvy. They want deals. They want lots of deal flow. They have the money to invest. And of course, in a tough economic climate like we're in today, I'm not saying that people are pulling the trigger as fast as they have historically because they're a little bit cautious. There's less capital available to them. The cost of cash is more expensive. And then, of course, there's the, um, you know, the doom and gloom of the future that, that makes them a little wary. Regardless, there is a lot of competition for good quality assets. And so we tend to focus on the sell side than we do the buy side. I appreciate that. I imagine that the security for something like this can be pretty tight at a company like Flippa. You know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of other people's, including your own, financial information. What's the process of ensuring that that sensitive information isn't leaked to anyone, especially anyone that isn't a serious buyer? You know, I I came up immediately with this example of what if I'm this company's competition, I stumble upon their website and I can act like I want to buy the website so I could get, you know, their financial information a little bit. You know, how do you prevent something like that from happening? Yeah, so there's obviously the the actual platform security itself. We have teams of security experts which are ensuring that Flipper itself as a platform is watertight. I think then there's the IP of any given given business owner that is listed with us, and then the um, the protection of that as as confidential information, which may be more pertinent to your question. Let me know if I've understood that correctly. And so there's a few things you do. I mean, obviously. It's an opt-in environment, so if you want to expose the data transparently and openly to the public marketplace, you can do that, and we will explain to you that you have done that and and that is there for all to see. You can also protect your data by way of a non-disclosure agreement. You can also leave your data behind a walled garden such that it's, it's subject to funds verification. And so I could, for instance, list my asset on Flipper and say that the only people who can see this, one sign a non-disclosure agreement, two, verify their LinkedIn, three, connect to Plaid and show me categorically that they have the cash and capital and means available to be able to afford my asset. And three, I can I can protect that data until there is permission granted by Flipper on the basis of the validity of the buyer. There's various protections and it tends to be that financial data in its own right isn't actually confidential. If I say I make $100,000 and I disclose that, I haven't given away any trade secret. There's nothing particularly exciting about the the six or seven figure denomination that I've just given you, right? And so a lot of business owners will say, I would like to protect my financial information. Like, hang on, we're not talking about credit card numbers here. We're talking about some reference to how you're performing on a web page. And that in its own right isn't confidential. So if someone was to say, this is the way I acquire customers, and that happened to be a particular technique that was confidential, then you just would not disclose that until you got to the point where you had signed the non-disclosure agreement, you had a letter of intent, and you had validated and verified that the buyer that you are speaking to, in fact, is the buyer you want to do business with. But a little bit like selling your house, the minute you are open for inspection and you open the front door, Someone is able to walk through your house and assess whether they want to buy that house or not. 
And of course, your next door neighbor could be walking through your house. And so it comes down to, are you content with the idea that this particular buyer with this particular profile, with this particular ID verification, with this particular LinkedIn connected profile is now looking at your stuff? If yes, let them in. If no, don't. Because, you know, according to the previous part of our conversation, you want to protect these sellers. You don't want them to feel like they're putting their businesses on Flippa to get poached, to get like acquired, and then, you know, kind of bastardized a little bit in some sort of effect. You want people to feel comfortable to put their stuff on there. So the more due diligence you do and the more, you know, safeguards that you ensure, the more people are going to want to use Flippa. So I could imagine that it's a pretty, you know, stringent process. Interestingly enough, good businesses are built on execution. It's not actually trade secrets, which makes a business great. We're not talking about high tech here. So if a blog is winning tens of thousands of customers a month organically as a function of fantastically strong content optimized for the benefit of the Google search engine, that is outstanding execution. It's There's no trade secrets in that. It's, it's hire an SEO expert, write incredible content, do so for a long enough period of time. Pick keywords where the competitive, where the competition is not as high as other keywords and win traffic accordingly. That isn't the trade secret. What is the trade secret is that I've been able to do that consistently over time, or not even the trade secret, execution. I've been able to do that over time consistently, and I've been able to plug in the revenue sources, which earn me the most money. And that don't want to do it anymore. And that don't want to do it anymore. So you can do it now. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in the four years and some change. How long has Flippa been around? Last I saw was somewhere just under like five years, something like that. Uh, a lot longer, actually. We've been around for 13 years. 13, yeah. that's amazing. Okay. So the key the key point is that, you know, 13 years ago, there were very few digital assets traded and now there's a lot. No, that's amazing. That makes this question even better in my opinion, honestly. We'll start now, okay? So currently right now, do you consider the general market to be a buyer's market or a seller's market? Right now... Again, thinking of it like real estate, usually it's pretty binary where it's yeah, like... Yeah, it's not so binary in this case because... All the assets that are small are undervalued in the first place. So okay. I would say it's a buyer's market because you get to use the narrative as a negotiation tactic. For all the sellers out there, the narrative is a falsehood because these assets were never overvalued to begin with. So it's not like startup investing and it's not like the public markets. But buyers use it as part of the narrative. So I'd say it's a buyer's market. Okay, great. So how have you seen that change in, in the 13 years since you started the company? I mean, does it fluctuate often? You mentioned something about quarterly a little bit. Uh, again, yeah. you could tell me I think this question doesn't make any any sense because you're thinking of it in realist and, and I would totally understand that. It makes a lot of sense. I think it changes as business models become more familiar and popular. So for instance, 18 months ago, there is a crazy, feverish-like demand for FBA fulfilled by Amazon, right? That's because, one, Amazon built a wonderful ecosystem that enabled business owners and what Amazon defines as sellers all over the world to generate large sums of money from utilizing their large community of buyers, i.e. customers, and, of course, their data gave people a unique insight into what would and would not work. Fast follow that with huge amounts of private equity-backed institutional 
investors, what they called aggregators. Turns out they weren't aggregators, they were operators. So much money going into that particular niche that as a function of that, everyone from Bloomberg to Forbes to Fortune to Entrepreneur was covering this aggregator phrase. So then everyone else, you, me, and my dog, Lola, also wanted to buy an FBA business. So in that particular case, yes, it was absolutely a seller's market because if you owned an FBA business that was half decent, you had buyers willing to pay overs to get into the market. So it depends on the business model. It depends on the craze at the time. It depends on the categories. It depends on the age of the assets. If you get all of those factors right, it's the, it can then be a seller's market pretty quickly. What's that business right now? What is that part of the, it sounds like portfolio that every, everyone's trying to fill that that's kind of that, you know, attractive new thing right now. So there's certainly a great deal of groundswell around the app ecosystem. So we're talking about all those apps sitting on your iPhone and all those apps sitting on your friend's Android phone, literally hundreds of billions of dollars in publisher revenue each quarter. So it's a big industry. And you know that because if you stare at your phone, you've probably got 100 to 150 different apps sitting. And so that ecosystem of app developers has now matured to the extent that there are a bunch of savvy, smart investors who now want to acquire those apps so that they can own a portion of that app ecosystem. And there are individuals who are savvy enough to know that their investor dollars will be well-placed in that ecosystem. And there are some very, very, very um, heavily backed, similar to the FBA aggregators, private equity and US family office backed aggregators of apps. No, that's great. And I, just from a personal experience can understand the value of it when I don't have to get on a browser and look for you. I can just open my phone and you're automatically there. That's that's something that is instantaneous. You know, I'm I'm more likely to use something the more often I look at it, specifically something that is generally getting consumed anywhere between four to six hours a day, uh, if I'm being honest. Yeah. So and, and so much money, right? So if you take, what was it? I think it was the, the last quarter of 2022, app revenues from the iOS store increased 10.6%, off an enormous number already, $36.3 in app revenues from iOS in the last quarter of 2022, right? Think about that as a quantum and think about how many great apps there are earning from that ecosystem. And so savvy investors are just saying, how good is this? There's been this developer community who has worked hard to build an audience. We can easily assess them by daily active users, by the same metrics that any other decent business is assessed on, which is revenue, expenses, uh, ex- revenue minus expenses equals profit. As a function of those, those three things, you then get a sense of how good those assets are. And like any other business, investors are frothy for quality. Absolutely. Before we wrap up, Blake, I always ask my guests the same final question. In the e-commerce industry, professionals are usually operating 24-7, 365 to ensure stable, good mental health and a balanced work-life harmony. What are some things that you do in your free time in terms of hobbies and interests? Go for a run, play golf, Hug your wife, hug your daughter. <laughs> nice. 
Short and simple. I, I love it. You know, they, the, I think it was Mark Twain that said golf is a good walk spoiled. And that's always kind of stuck. Yeah, I'm me. a horrific golfer. But the fact of the matter is you get to walk the parkland and swing a stick and occasionally hit it well. And that's all that really matters. Exactly. Well, Blake, I really appreciate your time, man. Good luck with Flippa. It's a great idea. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate you, Tom. I'd like to thank my guest, Blake Hutchison, for joining me on the show and come back on Tuesday when I talk with Yong Su Chung, a serial entrepreneur, podcaster, and the founder of multiple online retail stores and a third-party logistics company called GrowthJet. For more information about Blake, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. For more information about Flippa, you can check out their website, flippa.com, spelled F-L-I-P-P-A. Follow them on Twitter, at Flippa, or follow them on Facebook and Instagram, at Flippa Marketplace. That's our show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until then.